He looks determined without being ruthless. Something heroic in his manner. There's a courage about him. Doesn't look like a killer. Comes across so calm. Acts like he has a dream. Full of passion. You don't trust me, huh? Well, you know why. I do. We're not supposed to trust anyone in our profession anyway. Peace, 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 and welcome to The Rematch, which is part of the BasketballNews.com podcast network. On The Rematch, you'll hear in-depth interviews with notable names from all walks of life. Because sometimes the media just doesn't get it right. The Rematch is that second opportunity to clarify, put things in proper context, correct fake news or misreported controversy, The media still exists as the most powerful entity on earth because they control the minds of the masses. I'm Atan Thomas, and the full truth is what we are aiming to catch. Many media stories omit details that would dilute their clickbait roar, and that's why there's a need for the rematch. In this episode, I sat down with ESPN analyst Jay Billis to discuss the new monumental day in the NCAA era where amateurism is a thing of the past, as the NCAA will no longer retain their century-long stronghold on name, image, and likeness of college athletes. We broke down what that exactly means, where it's going, if this is the end of the fight, and much more. This was a very thorough examination of the NCAA as a whole. This was a great discussion. Hope you enjoy. Jay Billis, how you doing, sir? Great, Isan. How are you? I'm doing good. You know, I, I appreciate you coming on the rematch on um, Fly TV and BasketballNews.com. You know, I've been following you for a long time, and I've retweeted so many of your tweets. I've referenced you in so many of my articles. And before we even start, I want to thank you for um, being steady with your stance and your push with the NCAA. And I, I just really want to thank you for that because there aren't a lot of voices that take the consistent stances that that you take. So I just want to thank you for that. Well, that's nice of you to say. I, I, I really look at it that I've been covering the issue. And in covering it, I've certainly developed some opinions and hopefully some understanding of the way the system works. So uh, th- that may be where the consistency comes from. You know, it goes all the way back to when I was a player. Right. Definitely. Definitely. So, um, you know, now we're, we're, we've entered a day in the NCAA um, era, which is pretty much monumental, uh, monumental day where amateurism is a thing of the past as the NCAA will no longer retain the century long stronghold that they've had on a uh, name, image, and likeness of college athletes. Now, before we even start, let's be clear. The NCAA didn't wake up and have a Scrooge McDuck moment and, you know, on Christmas morning and want to right all of their wrongs in the past. They fought tooth and nail against this. Um, the NCAA didn't expect the Supreme Court uh, to rule against them because they've haven't done that in the past. They've, they've allowed them to do whatever they wanted to do. So let's break down how this all came about. Well, it's a it's a bit of a long process. And as you said, it's 116 years coming. But I think it stems all the way back to 1984, the last time the NCAA was before the United States Supreme Court. 
And then it wasn't the athletes suing the NCAA, it was the schools. You know, the NCAA office used to tell the schools how often they could be on television for football games. And the schools didn't like that. They wanted to make more money. They wanted to get more exposure. They felt television was important to them. And so they sued under the same antitrust theory that the NCAA was essentially a cartel Mm -hmm. that was telling them what to do. And so uh, they won. And that opened everything up for schools to make money, essentially hand over fist. That's when the, the most drastic change in college sports began, when schools and conferences could cut their own media rights deals. And that led to apparel deals that led to all sorts of media rights and other other deals, that, you know, sponsorship deals and money started flowing in. Coaching salaries started going way up. You know, I'm older than you, Tom, but when I played for Coach K, he made less than one hundred thousand dollars a year. Right. And my sense is when you played for Jim Beheim, he didn't make that much money. Right. And now they're making millions upon millions. And I'm not saying they don't deserve it, but nobody has ever complained about, you know, sort of the drastic change in college sports when it's been on the revenue side, the salary side and the facility side. So fast forward to today, things really began to change when the state of California passed, the, passed a law called the Fair Pay to Play Act. Mm-hmm. And Senator Nancy Skinner pushed that forward. The NCAA tried to bully her, and she would not be bullied. She's formidable. Right. When that when that happened, that's what you know. It shows what competition really does. Other states started passing laws, uh, similar laws, because they were concerned that wait a minute, does this give California an advantage? Mm-hmm. So they passed their own. Congress got involved and started you know threatening action. Although they haven't done anything yet, there's been a lot of bills put forward. But then the Alston case, um, there, there was a case called the Alston case. There was the O'Bannon case before that, suing under similar theories out in the Ninth Circuit. The NCAA uh, lost and won that case at the trial level and then on appeal uh, to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. So the, the, the ruling was, before, before it ever was appealed to the Supreme Court, was that Student student athletes can no longer be limited in what they can receive on the academic side. Mm-hmm. So they can get tutor, you know, more tutoring, uh, laptops. If you want to give them a laptop, study abroad programs, things like that. Anything having to do with academics. But it kept the other amateurism principles intact. Right. And that wasn't good enough for the NCAA. They they weren't going to allow anyone to tell them how to make their rules. Even though it was a really favorable ruling, they should have been celebrating, saying this is going to give us at least 30 more years of this. Right. So they appealed at the Supreme Court and they lost and they got their rear end handed to them. And it wasn't just that they that that the Supreme Court affirmed the lower court. The Supreme Court said that the the protections you got in the Board of Regents case in 1984 mm-hmm. that said that that, you know, you're bulletproof. Amateurism is everything. Those are gone. Those -hmm. protections are gone. That was dicta in that decision. And so that was a huge loss. Now, every time somebody sues the NCAA, and they will, on on restrictions on NIL, on restrictions on pay from the school, on restrictions on any pay, there are going to be more lawsuits. And now the NCAA is going to have to prove that their restrictions are pro-competitive. You know that 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 they have a really good reason to do it, and the court, the Supreme Court, basically said, "We don't think you can prove that." You know, in any other business, and Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, said this in the uh, concurring opinion: in any other business, the NCAA's practices would be per se illegal. 
the right. NCAA is not above the law. The that was the last words is not above the law, and lower courts are going to hear that, and it's going to resonate. And the NCAA made a huge mistake by appealing it, but athletes want a huge victory. You know, it's interesting, and even even what you're talking about with Kavanaugh. You know, I, I was watching it and you know reading what he said and how he made a great point that this would never work in any other capacity in everyday life if you try to apply. The, the, the method that the NCAA does on, on, on college athletes to restaurants or medical workers or law, you know, like when you applied each of those and it made it sound so ridiculous once you put it in those terms. But the fact that the NCAA has been able to operate in this for so long, I mean, I, and you've been making this argument for the longest and I have as well and, you know, a few other people as well, but so many people see it as something completely different because, I, I don't. I don't know why. I don't. You know what I'm saying. I, I I talk about it all the time. And I don't understand why it look. It, it appears as though um, the NCAA has carved out their own business method that is acceptable in society that would not be acceptable in any other way. That's basically yes. and for a long time has operated that way. Yes, and they've they've sold a bill of goods to the public that somehow athletes are different and it's okay to treat them differently. And they make it seem like athletes get treated better than everybody else. That right. somehow, you know, there, there's been uh, a thing put out there by the NCAA. Well, well, athletes do get compensated. They get a scholarship. Yeah. And, and look at all the things they get. They get a scholarship and they get these wonderful facilities and they get a chance to apply their trade to someday go on and play in the NBA or the NFL. Well, they don't say that to coaches, right? You know, they, don't, they don't tell coaches that, listen, we're going to sign you, you know, you, you, all coaches across the board are limited to their expenses only because this is a wonderful opportunity for you. You get to work with the finest young athletes in the finest facilities and you get to travel and, uh, and, and we'll give you free gear. Right. And then, and then you get to hone your skills so that maybe someday you can work in the NBA or the NFL. Can you imagine if we said that crap to to coaches? They'd 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 be in court the next day, yeah. and but somehow because of that board of regents case, there was language that's called dicta in that board of regents case mm-hmm. that that said that it, offhanded comments that basically said you know amateurism uh, is a bedrock principle of the NCAA and players cannot be paid. That's what separates it from professional sports. And I've always felt that was nonsense. Like what separates college, you know, the college market for any other market in sports is that the, uh, the players go to class, players go to school, they're enrolled as full-time students. That's the only eligibility requirement that there should be in college sports shouldn't be with regard to money. And, uh, and so I've never understood how people could say, well, uh, so-and-so, so-and-so gets a scholarship. I wish I could be exploited like that. Right. Well, you could, you could have been. Like they, they, if you were good enough, you would have gotten a scholarship either academically or athletically. And one of the things, Etan, that drives me nuts is when they say that a scholarship is pay. Yeah. Well, well, non-athlete, there are more non-athlete students that get scholarships than athletes. Mm. So they're being paid. Right. And if they're being paid, why aren't they subject to the same monetary restrictions as, as athletes are? Right. You know, none of it makes any sense. It's all a fiction. It's all a myth. And it's also that the NCAA can control every dollar. And they're still thinking that way. Like, uh, sorry to ramble on this, but they're Not still okay. thinking that way. Like one of the things that, that's laughable this is, is with NIL rights coming in and a few players signing deals right now, the schools right. are saying, well, 
you know, this could affect us. I mean, you wonder, like, will a shoe company go directly to the players rather than to us? Will local, you know, local businesses, instead of doing a deal with us, do it with the players? And they think it's their money. Yeah. Like, they think that money belongs to them. I'm like, well, that's not a bad thing. (laughs) You know, they they don't want to compete in the marketplace. They want it slanted so the money comes to them. And they don't work. Yeah. And they don't worry about that money, however it comes to them, how it goes in their pocket afterwards, because it does. It goes into the administrator's pockets and it goes into the the coach's pockets. And the players deserve to compete for that money, too. You know, it's interesting. Um, one of the things we we share in common also, we don't, you know, we have my former coach, Coach Beheim. Um, I respectfully disagree with him quite often, especially on this issue, um, as so do you. But I, re- I remember, you know, him talking about, you know, if the NIL, you know, did change and, and everything that they painting a doom and gloom picture, like it won't be just players making $500 or $800 here and there. It'll be thousands of dollars. And he kept saying that. I was like, well, that's okay, coach. Like, what do you mean? Like, why why is that a bad thing? If they go to Wegmans or Syracuse, brand, you know, Wegmans, or if they go to, you know, something at the at Destiny USA or at something like that, and they can get marketing deals. Why not? But I think that one of the issues is that some of, a lot of those deals are going to start going to the players and not to the coaches. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's part of it. Um, I, you know, th- there is going to be a shift in in where some of the money goes, and players are going to be more in demand. I think it's an issue primarily, though, of control. That coaches now, whether it's Coach K or or Jim Beheim or whomever, uh, they have complete control over the players. Not that they abuse it. I'm not suggesting that. But mm-hmm. when when control is lost, there is a feeling of insecurity there, mm-hmm. and there there is there is discussion now about well, we don't want all of this to be a distraction to the duties of a of a student athlete. He's like, what 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 does that mean? Like, right. <laughs> so the players like look if the players don't go to school. You can you can kick them off the team tomorrow if they're not doing their their schoolwork to the level you want. Um, go ahead and and if they're not if they boy if they're sleepy in in meetings you don't have to put them in the game if you don't want to. Um, you know they, people act like somehow because there are other opportunities priorities change. Right, and I, I don't think that's necessarily true. Like you don't you don't hear them say. I don't know if you know these. If we allow these players to have significant others, it could be a distraction to their duties as players. And I don't know about that. And, you know, it's come on, man. Like you, you guys set the working conditions. Right. If if your school does not want players to do nil deals, you can you can tell them you don't want them to do it. That's right. fine. That right. that's the marketplace. Individual schools can do that. It's the collective that can't do that unilaterally. And mm-hmm. so, so, you know, because, it, but Syracuse nor Duke, they're, they're all touting their NIL platform now because they want, they want it in recruiting. Yeah. So I mean, while, <laughs> while they, while they're arguing against the policy, they, they're going to, they're going to use it to their advantage and they should, you know, yeah. NIL is going to be a recruiting tool now and it should be, that's, that's smart. That's the way, you know, they tout where they're playing. If you, you know, and you do it, if you, and you're one of them, if you look at any media guide, mm-hmm. um, the media guides used to be for the media. Now right. they're for recruits. Of course. So they're big sections of those, but look at our NBA players. We'll get yes. you to the NBA. We can get yep. you to the NBA. It's the same yep. thing. They'll use NIL the same way. Look how much our players are making. Look what they're doing. Look at their visibility in the public, stuff like that. 
I, I did think it was kind of interesting that uh, Coach Beheim he was against it so much. But then one of the first people who came out with the deal was Buddy Beheim and Buddy Buckets. And, I, and that's my guy. I've interviewed him. I'm, I'm going to buy his, his, his paraphernalia with Buddy Buckets hoodies. You know, I was really happy for him. But I did think that was interesting. But you're right. They're going to definitely market that, that you too can be marketed the same way that Buddy Buckets was marketed. You know, and, and it's interesting. I remember... When I was, in, I was in school of management at Syracuse University, I remember in the summertime, I'm up there working out, you know what I mean, taking a few extra, extra courses. And I remember my classmates being able to get paid internships uh, during the summer. And I wanted to do what they did. I want to get some paid internships. I'm in business classes just like you are. And I couldn't because I would have been paid too much. And I, I can only work this amount of hours. And I was like, well, how is that fair? You know, what I mean? like all, and I remember going to my compliance people, going to the coaches, going to everything. They're like, those are the rules. You can't. I was like, so I'm up here working out and going to school, and I cannot get a paid internship in the school of management where I'm getting my degree in. And they're like, no, that's the rules. And that's, that's, it's ridiculous. It, it, it has been ridiculous forever. Yeah. But, but there's been no reason, there was no reasoning with the NCAA over that time period. And because they were they were always worried about worst case scenarios and is this going to lead to something else? And uh, they had a stranglehold on the business. And so they were OK with you suffering or somebody else suffering because the whole business was healthy and they were getting paid and everything was great. Um, you know, and, and it's not like the people at the NCAA aren't great people. They are. The policies are just bad. Yeah. So, you know, like now. One of the things uh, of the many things that used to make me laugh is when you would talk about the inequities in the system mm -hmm. and people would say, hey, if you don't like it, go work, go get a job. Like nobody's <laughs> stopping you from getting a job flipping burgers at McDonald's or doing this or doing that. And you're like, what, why should I do that when I have <laughs> other opportunities? Like, so you're telling me making money is OK, but you're going to tell me in what areas I can make money. Right. And and it's funny, Tom, nobody then was telling telling anybody geez, well, uh, what about taxes? And what about all these complications of money and all, all the things that the, the pitfalls the players are going to have to deal with? Yeah. You know, now, they're, now they're worried about the worried. Of taxation. Like, right. really? <laughs> uh, come on. Um, yeah. The players are going to be fine. And, and as you know, there's a race component to this. Uh, yeah. there, there are some, there are some, that, uh, you know, some administrators that have said, and they've said it publicly, that yeah. you, know, you, you give the players money, they're just going to go to Best Buy and buy, you know, buy headphones or buy this or buy that. And you're like, come on, man. Yeah. Like, that, that's, are you really thinking that and saying that out loud? Like, that, that's so absurd. Uh, well, but that's the world we're living in, and we just have to continue to, to out-think out and out-reason um, some of these tenants that have been in place for so long that that mm -hmm. the pub the public doesn't care like the public doesn't care whether the players are paid or not they're going to go to the games anyway they they like to watch this stuff and they're going to keep watching it and and the argument that the ncaa has made that well you know that we're going to lose what college sports is all about and it, it's yeah. going to lose its popularity no it's not right no it's not <laughs> right it, didn't lose his – you can't point to any analog, didn't happen in the Olympics, didn't happen in, in baseball, didn't happen in any of these places. And it's funny how nobody turned away when the coaches started making five, six, seven, eight million dollars a year. Nobody turned away when strength coaches made all this money, when they're flying right. private. Nobody turned away by, by, you know, all the commercialism in the game. So the whole thing teeters on the athlete remaining unpaid. You're really trying to convince people that it's just not true. You know, it's interesting. And I want to read a part. I, I interviewed um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for, you know, probably the the, the the best college player ever. 
um, as far as what he achieved. And he's been very vocal about the um, exploitation of the NCAA. So I wrote a book, uh, We Matter, Athletes and Activism, and I, I dealt with the whole chapter about the exploitation of the NCAA. And I want to read this quote, and you tell me what you think about it. He said, the irony is that the NCAA and other supporters claim paying athletes would sully the purity of college sports, desecrating our image of a youthful clash of school rivalries that always ended at the malt shop with school songs being swung and innocent flirting between boys in letterman's jackets and girls with ponytails and chastity rings. In reality, what makes college sports such a, a powerful symbol in our culture is that it represents our attempt to impose fairness on an otherwise unfair world. Fair play, sportsmanship, and good-natured rivalry are lofty goals to live by. By treating the athletes like indentured servants, we're tarnishing that symbol and reducing college sports to just another exploitation of workers, no better than a sweatshop. I, I agree with I agree with that. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is, if not the smartest, one of the smartest human beings I've ever met. And he has thought deeply and written about these issues for years, and he experienced it right. and experienced it at a level that I can't fathom. Uh the, the exploitation piece, I think, is important because a, a lot of people within the structure recoil at that word mm -hmm. and the use of it. And, and, and then it becomes a misdirection on their part. They want to argue over the use of the word, saying, look over here. Don't look at the actual exploitation. Look at the use of the word. I don't like that word that we argue over the use of exploitation. Right. But, but I, I think it's exploitation because you have an organization of uh, the NCAA, all the member institutions that, that gather together as a cartel and they limit one class of person only, the athlete. And while at the same time using that one class to make a ton of money. Like to me, that's exploitation. It's not that the players are mistreated. They're not mistreated. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're well fed and, and all this stuff. But but I would feel that that uh, that concept of exploitation with anyone who was limited in what they could earn or accept in a business as big as uh, as college sports, a multi multi billion dollar industry, and you know, to me, it's just a question. It's a civil right. It's a question of fairness, and and it has been from the beginning for me. This has nothing to do to, to me, and in, in my view of of whether players are underprivileged and, and playing or whether they're privileged and playing. Um, every, everybody should be allowed to make what they're worth in the marketplace. It's a, it's a fair market value issue. And if the schools, Division Two and Division Three is open to Syracuse and Duke. If they don't like it, they can go there and, and play at a level where, you know, spending is in line with the university mission. The coach makes $100,000 a year. There's no admission to the games. They can do that. But they're participating in a major league sport like college sports is not minor league. A lot of right. people say, well, this is just going to turn college sports into the minor leagues. No, it won't. Minor leagues don't make billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. They don't have multi-billion dollar television contracts. Right. All of these all of these conferences, the SEC, the ACC, the Big Ten, those are major league. And so this is pro sports. And for the first time, to your earlier point, for the first time in the 116-year history of the NCAA, they've had to admit that their players are professional. 
-hmm. You know, you can't make an argument for 100 years saying anything more than a scholarship and you're a pro. You know, if, if players are allowed NIL rights, and they argued this and said it under oath in the Alston mm -hmm. case and the O'Bannon case, if you're allowed more than a scholarship and more than the cost of attendance, you are a professional. Mm -hmm. And so now that now the NCAA has, has put rules in saying our players are professional, so they're going to have a really hard time limiting them in any way monetarily. Uh, they like I think the lawsuits are going to come swiftly saying you can't tell us how much we can make anymore because that ship sailed already. And I think they're going to lose those cases. And the only chance the NCAA has to, to salvage their antiquated, unfair, exploitative model is to go to Congress and say, please give us, please give us the NCAA a serial antitrust violator. Please mm -hmm. give us an antitrust exemption so we can keep doing what we've been doing all this time. And we don't have to give the players any monies. They can get it from other people, but we, we we don't have to give it to them. And none of our boosters can, as if they'll not get around that. I mean, it's so so ridiculous. Well, there, you know, uh, uh, according to my sources, I'll do my Stephen A. Smith, and I'll just play it. I just read that, that Mitch McConnell is doing that right now, that they're lobbying and trying to lobby Congress to be able to um, you know, change the laws and enter laws to protect them because they see where it's going. They see that they've now just opened the door to eventually college athletes being paid. And it, I would be, a, right now with, with Congress, you know, Congress is very much divided. I, I don't see that as being a possibility, but stranger things have happened. You know, yes. I, I, got, I can't rule it all the way out that they would create a new law to protect them, you know, in their antitrust violations. Could you, could you yeah. see that happening? Yeah, I, I can't see it happening because I, I think Congress, uh, to this point, there are, there, there are many people in Congress that think, uh, that have bought the NCAA's argument that they need a national standard, you know, in order for, for there to be fairness and competition. Uh, I disagree with that. I think it's demonstrably untrue, but, but the NCAA is really good at getting out like this phony argument and you know, to me, I, I look at it by saying, well, what other national standard do we have that governs uh, the business? You know, it, it's funny. I mean, we, we've got 50 different states that have 50 different uh, income tax uh, laws. Right. And the NCAA has never said, well, that's unfair because, you know, now all the best coaches and the best employees are going to flock to Florida, Texas and Nevada and other states that don't have any state income tax. That's a huge right. advantage when you're making $8 million a year. Right. Uh, to have no state income tax, that, that's a huge advantage. Um, they're not making that argument. And like my point before about the different states passing NIL laws, like if, if one state, say California, because they were first, if California has the most liberal NIL law in the, uh -huh. in the country and it, and it looks like they're going to have an advantage in recruiting, then other states can pass a similar law. You know, they, they can say, OK, well, well, let's let's up what our players are allowed in, in, in our state so we can be competitive. That's what competition looks like. It doesn't need to be a national standard that has to be revisited all the time. And I happen to think maybe the NCAA differs. I happen to think Congress has more important things to do than do the NCAA's job for it, which is to make national standards. And uh, to me, their national standard should be we are now deregulated. And the only eligibility concern that we have is you have to be an enrolled student full time in good standing to be eligible. Everything else is up to your institution. But, you know, it's so interesting to me to hear politicians make an argument in one case and then make the exact opposite argument 
where it comes to stuff. So like for, for you know, police departments, I think there should be a national standard that they all have to go by this rules and every, and it's not just the, the Tulsa police department is different than the LAPD police department and the Miami police department and the NYPD. And everybody has their, somebody, some people have body cams. This doesn't have an outside entity. Like it should be a national standard, but I see the same exact people then make the case with college athletes that oh, here now with this, we have to have a national standard. We can't have one college doing something different than the other one because that'll, you know, create this whole doom and gloom scenario. It's just, that's just interesting to me when I hear that, you know? Well, there, I, I think there are a lot of factors, so it, it can't be boiled down to one thing in my view, but, but mm -hmm. I think some of it has to do with being sold tradition that we have a long storied tradition of college sports in this country. And, and, you know, we don't want to see that disrupted. We want to see it healthy. And there, there's some, there's some deal out there that people have bought into that, that the players being amateur is a, is a factor in the game being healthy. And it's just not, it's right. not, you know, we, we've never, we've never worried about traditions when, you know, the commercialism of the game went through the roof right. and no, nobody stopped and said, Hey, this isn't in the college collegiate sports tradition. And it's not traditional for coaches to make this kind of money and, and to do the things that they're doing. It's not traditional to have games played at this hour of the night, uh, you know, and, and to have all night games. And, um, you know, I, I used to I, I, I used to push back on this, but now I don't even argue with coaches anymore. They'll say TV, you know, TV's making us play at this time. I said, no, they're not. They're not. <laughs> you actually sold the yeah. game to them and you can you can play whenever you want right but if you but you sold the game to television and said they could put it on at night for more money you know you can play at noon every game if you want and you right. can play all on saturdays if you want but television paid you more to play on a tuesday night at nine o'clock and you took the money so don't and, and the money went into your pocket yeah so so you can say that but what you're saying isn't true and a lot of things that are said in college sports just aren't true mostly by the NCAA. You know, it's interesting because um, you're talking about the way that things were back when you played and even going back further, when people make the argument that, oh, you know, athletes, college athletes are getting a scholarship. So that should be their pay. I would say back at, uh, you know, I was having this conversation with Danny Shays, you know, and he played a, a lot earlier than I did at, at, at Syracuse. And I said, OK, well, maybe way back in the day, you know, that, that maybe it was a good trade off, you know, that, you know, we were talking about going back to when his father played. Like, you know, it, it you 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 get a scholarship, you go play, you know, for the team set. But now with TV deals, with those kind of the revenues going through the roof, with basketball related in, um, income, football related income going through the roof. You can't say that it is equal. I mean, the numbers don't match up. I remember being in economics class looking. I was like, wait a minute. These numbers don't match. You know, like you, you it's it's amazing to me when I hear people make that argument. I was, um, a, a quick, quick story, uh, my freshman year, uh, me and my point guard, Jason Hart, at Syracuse. And, you know, we were looking through the coaching stuff, being, being up there, looking at the stuff we ain't supposed to be looking at. And it was right after John Wallace and Otis Hill and Lazar Sims and all of them went to the uh, championship game the year before. And we saw how much Syracuse brought in. And we were like, that's how much they made just from, from the from March Madness by itself. And we're looking at each other like, wow, like we didn't even know the number was that astronomical. And so when I hear people say, 
well, how are they possibly going to pay college, you know, athletes when I'm like, well, do you know how much they're making? They can figure it out if they really wanted to. And I just want you to explain how, you know, because I, I see a lot of interviews with you and people saying, well, there's no way that they could possibly, you know, develop a good system to be able to pay college athletes. And I'm like, well, they developed that system with the coaches. Yeah. None of the coaches are working for free. Every, so why, why when it comes to college athletes, it's so impossible of a scenario that you can wrap your mind of, around that would work? What, what, why is that? Well, because first of all, the athletes are starting at zero. So they've never been paid. So we, we don't have a baseline to, mm -hmm. to compare it to. But going back to your earlier point, I would argue uh, that it's never been a fair trade, a scholarship for play. And the reason I say that is, it, to me, it's not based upon the revenue that's brought in. That That's widened the gap. Mm -hmm. But the, the a scholarship is the least amount that an athlete is worth because it's the least you can give to an athlete. Or it's the most you can give to an athlete. So it's the least amount that they're worth. And even when back when I played, I played just after Danny Shays did. He actually he actually helped recruit me. I, you know, I, I was well, recruited by students. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but when back then, when the money wasn't as big, they still gave, gave scholarships to non-athlete students. So what were they being paid for? That's true. And why was their deal so good? And why weren't they restricted in what they could earn or accept in their chosen field? Right. That if you're on a music scholarship, why could you still play at a local bar and make money? Or you could actually play for the president of the university at a, at a university party and the school would pay you. Yep. You know, those, those things have happened and do happen now. But the argument that how are we going to do this fairly? You know, how are we going to pay everybody? We're going to have to pay everybody the same. Uh, is the quarterback going to make more than the punter? Uh, you know, how are we going to do all this stuff? You, you almost laugh saying, yeah. well, in what area do you ask those questions? Like Duke yeah. has 30,000 employees. Right. Do you, do you think they're up at night going, how do we pay everybody? Like, what do we do? Like, right. you know, do we pay coach K the same as the landscape professional? Right. What about the head of surgery? How do we pay the head of surgery versus the, the, the janitorial staff? Right. They all work equally as hard. And what about the turnover that we're going to have? Because not all of our hourly workers, our food service workers, go from year to year. Sometimes we only have people for a year and they go to something else and we have right. turnover. How are we going to pay the next person, get them in there? Right. And, that, and then taxes, their taxes and then employment laws. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? Like, right. come on, man. Yeah. They know exactly how to do this. Yeah. So with 30,000 employees, you think they can't figure out 300 athletes? Right. And the other part of it, Eton, that I, I, I laugh at, saying, okay, so the schools know exactly whom to recruit, mm -hmm. exactly whom to offer scholarships to, and exactly whom to put in the game when they want to win. Right. But they don't know what anybody's worth. Right. They don't know that. Right. And they're not sitting up at night going, what should we do with all these players? We've got 13 guys on the basketball team. Do we play them all the same amount of minutes? How do we dole out the, the starts? Like we can't start one group the whole year and have guys come off the bench the whole, we'll have fights in the locker room. Like right. that's not fair. They all work just as hard. They're all here for practice. And by the way, all of us coaches, like I'm the head coach and I'm making more money than everybody. That's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> so we should all, let's all pool the money together. We'll share it. Cause it's crazy that I make more than you. Right. Come on. The, the, these are all laughable concerns and, and let the schools do what they want to do. If Syracuse doesn't want to pay their players, then don't pay. Right. If you want to pay all your athletes the same, do that. Mm -hmm. If you want to, if you want to cut sports, cut them, but they're not going to cut them. They're not. You've seen it. You've seen it now. Some, somebody tries to cut a sport 
and their alumni comes after them and they have to reinstate it. Yeah. Like they're not going to cut sports. That's not going to happen. And, and th- this whole thing is the, uh, these doomsday scenarios that, that are so like fantastic mm-hmm. that, that, but people buy it because they, they don't want anything changed. You know, they, they're like, don't mess with my product. I like it. Like we already went through conference realignment and I lost Oklahoma, Nebraska and, and Syracuse isn't playing Georgetown anymore. I don't want this anymore. Right. You know, no more changes until I die. When I die, you can change whatever you want. It's, it's that kind of ridiculous. stuff. <laughs> no, that's, 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 that's a great point. You know, it's, it's interesting when you're talking about, um, you know, the doomsday and the, the, the picture that people have painted. So I'm now seeing even with this, this new NIL rule and, and the NIL change, you're seeing people describe it. And I'm seeing articles describe it. Well, now it's going to be a free for all. It's going to be the wild, wild West. It's going to be, you know, I mean, no holes barred, a bidding war. And I'm looking at, it, I'm like, well, isn't that every aspect of business? Isn't that the way that it operates? If one company is, is wants you and another company wants you more, aren't they going to up the ante on what the other company offered you? Isn't that the way that it works? <laughs> That's exactly the way it works. And that's the way it works with, you know, the transfer thing is interesting in that regard too. Like right now, coaches, especially, but some fans are complaining about the transfer portal Mm -hmm. and they're saying that, that this is wrong. This is crazy. Players have to learn to go through adversity. Uh, And at the first sign of adversity, they pack their bags and leave. And one of the things I say to coaches, I ask them, as I say, well, are you leading with adversity in your recruiting pitch? Like, are you telling them, hey, come to our place where there's a ton of adversity you're going to have to fight through? Or are right. you talking to them about the NBA? Right. Um, you know, my guess is you're not leading with adversity because I don't remember anybody telling me how hard it was going to be when I was being recruited. Right. That's and true. I don't think it's changed all that much. But then then they're saying, well, well, um, and the, co- the transfer portal exists because the coaches complain about mm-hmm. the way things were being done, that – if you wanted to, you know, if you were unhappy at Syracuse, you told your AAU coach, your AAU coach called Duke and said, hey, Eton's unhappy. Is you have, you have a, a scholarship available? Mm-hmm. And if they said yes, maybe you left and went there. Mm-hmm. And then, the you know, Jim Beheim says, well, that sucks. I mean, I didn't even know. How could I, you know, I've got to know about that. So right. they come up with this stupid transfer portal. Right. Whereas the coaches, when, when the coaches leave a job, no problem. They're not. They're not going into a portal. Yeah. And, and they're not telling their school, "Hey, listen, I'm unhappy here. I'm. Mm-hmm. I want to put myself on the market and see if there are any takers." Mm-hmm. They do a deal while they're under contract, yep. and then they tell their school they're leaving. Yep. Like so. So you know, and, and people want to talk about business practices. You know that that's not. The players aren't treated the same in any of these areas. Right. And because they don't have any say, they don't have any power. And now what say or power do they have over the structure? All they have is a a few bucks in their pocket. That's all they have. It's not a big power shift. And, uh, and the, the power will, you know, if there's ever a time where there's equality, Mm -hmm. it's when the school can sign them to a contract. Mm -hmm. Once that happens, then we're going to have some sort of balance. And then the players are going to stay where they are because they're going to be under contract and they're going to be, they're knowing where their money's coming from and they're not going to be leaving left and right. Like they are now. It, it actually will stabilize the business. I think so too, but, but they're afraid of it. They're, they're definitely afraid of it. And um, you know, I think they're going to try to figure out a way that they can get a piece of it. You know, I'm kind of, uh, there, there's more to come from this, you know, the NCAA is, isn't going to take it laying down because they, they, they did get, you know, you know, they were Hines handed to them in the Supreme Court, and they definitely didn't expect that. 
Uh, they didn't even have a contingency plan for that because they didn't even expect it to happen. They they seemed like it was a complete shock, and now they're just kind of scrambling. But do you foresee that they're going to try to implement something where they they have to be a part of the deal that they make or they have to negotiate or something like that? Do you think they're going to interject themselves into it somehow? No, um, not on the NIL front. So in the short run here, like what recently happened was what I expected, not that I'm always right in this stuff, but mm -hmm. they, they couldn't, the NCAA couldn't put any restrictions on NIL because they're really afraid of, of uh, uh, more antitrust violations, more antitrust lawsuits. So they basically said every school can do what their state allows, or if your state doesn't have a law, you can fashion your own NIL policy. So it's it, 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 you could argue there's an advantage in the states that don't have a state law that the early movers caused this to happen. But, you know, if there is an advantage, the, the states that have a law will repeal that law and they'll say, do what you want to do to be competitive. But what, what so I, it'll go back legislatively. The NCAA will ask for a national standard. That's their only hope here. Because the the they're going to lose these lawsuits on they'll lose it on NIL restrictions. Any restriction will be seen as being uh, violative of antitrust law, and I think it'll go as far as restrictions in allowing pay. So it, the NCAA doesn't allow schools to make a player an employee, to pay a player, or to, to you know, boosters, all this other stuff. I think all that'll fail too. That that they won't be able to show there's a pro competitive reason for that. And they'll they'll lose those cases. That'll take a while for that to happen. Okay. But the problem is, Etan, for the NCAA is, you know, you, the the timing isn't the issue. The issue is now when they lose these lawsuits, they're going to come with gigantic money damages, and antitrust damages are trebled. Mm -hmm. You know, it's times three. Right. So when they lose these cases, it's going to cost them a ton of money. So there's a there's a real concern about that. So the only way they can be taken out of antitrust peril with the way their rules work is is for Congress to take them out of it, give them like a safe harbor and say, OK, you know, you can restrict the athletes here, here and here. Um, and that won't violate antitrust law. We'll give you this safe harbor. Um, uh, and, and they're going to put all their eggs in that basket. So Mark Emmert and his his underlings are going to be on Capitol Hill a lot in the in the coming months and years trying to trying to get congress to give them protection so they can keep limiting athletes um you mentioned mark emmerich and you know he operates in a very interesting way um i think that's a the most polite way to be able to to say how he how he operates um very secretive about how much he makes a year although reports have been there's been a couple million dollars a year he has 14 vice presidents or 15 vice presidents that all make half a million a year. I don't know what 14 or 15 people do. Um, I don't, I, I just don't think that he's going to take this laying down. Um, I, I, I saw him move the goalposts and the NCAA really moved the goalposts on in the language and being careful. Okay. They're, they're, employees but not employees like you know the the way that they because they don't want to go down the road of having to compensate their 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 workers um and their employees but it's just interesting to see that they're not challenged there's no union there's no you know body that's looking like like is that something that you think would be beneficial if there was some 
collective body formed. I mean, you know, they, they don't want a union to be formed for college athletes. They, they've, you know, they tried that. I think it was Northwestern that tried to do that. Then they changed the rules and they couldn't do that anymore. Um, what is the option or solution for just letting them operate as a dictatorship? Do you know what I mean? Like what? I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, and that, that's very astute, you catching the, the language changes because they have changed it. It used to be they drew the line at, they called it professionalism, that yeah. more than more than cost of attendance would make a player professional. But now they know they've, they've crossed that line on their own and mm -hmm. the players are professional. So now they're saying, now they're, they're you know, kind of planting their flag on the employee status. The right. players can't be employees, that, right. that somehow that's against, a, you know, against the, what you know what moses brought down on the tablets on college sports right <laughs> um so so there that that is what's happening emmert is a little bit of a, a different animal in this regard you know he, he's one he's very smart and he's clearly a survivor because who could survive that much scandal and uh and having so many things go wrong on your watch and then having the model crumble under your feet because of horrifying decisions that that have been made at the at the executive level, right. but uh, you know he works for the the board of the board of governors, and they're mostly uh, college presidents. So he speaks their language, and they're not inclined to make a change. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure exactly what a change would do if they're going to just put another, you know, former president in there, in there that's going to do. You know, I, I think you could find certainly more competent people to do it. Mm -hmm. But but what we're going to see is. Uh, I don't think you're going to see the NCAA necessarily retreat here, but you're going to see them fight battles where they have a chance, a legitimate chance to win. Okay. And the only place they really have a chance to win is in Congress. Congress. Um, they, they've lost it in the courts, which is an extraordinary feat given, given the, the deference that the courts were given the NCAA, that it was just a, a really bad strategic decision to take the Alston case to the Supreme Court. That was the NCAA that appealed to the Supreme Court. That was profoundly stupid to do that. Mm -hmm. And they lost all their protections. Um, it, it, it was just a bad decision. So that's where it is, is it's going to be decided uh, in Congress. What I'm hopeful of, because I don't, you know, I look, reasonable minds can differ on this. I don't think Congress needs to get involved in this and needs to put a national standard out there because they're going to have to change it all the time. Uh, because the business is going to continue to change. Um, but here's what I'm hopeful of, is that in the coming months, people will find that NIL is just another form of, of the business. It's not that big a deal. The sun comes up every morning. Right. Uh, the world remains firmly on its axis. When we get to the fall, the stadiums are going to be full. All mm -hmm. the games are going to be played on time. All the checks are going to clear, mm -hmm. and everything's going to be fine. And maybe Congress will look at that and go, what do you need our help for? Yeah, everything's going great. Like you didn't need our help for the pandemic, you know, saying they, they need they need federal legislation to make sure they can play through a pandemic. You didn't need our help for that. Right. Why do you need our help now? Because players can make money. You know, it's it's a civil rights issue that Congress should be saying, what more what greater rights can we provide to the athlete? Mm -hmm. Not can we help restrict them? Um, that that's not that's not how rights work. Um, and, and the players have rights to compete in this marketplace, just like everyone else mm -hmm. and their civil rights. Uh, so, so the NCAA has sold this in a way that makes it seem like, well, we need this line drawn in the sand 
that the courts won't let us draw anymore. The United States Supreme Court won't let us draw anymore. So Congress, please come in and let us draw it. And uh, it's not a winning argument to me. But just because I don't think it's a winning argument doesn't mean it won't carry the day on Capitol Hill. Who knows what they'll do? That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Um, let me ask you this. Have you have you been criticized of being like a, from Duke alumni, from the powers that be at Duke, um, for your criticisms of the NCAA? I mean, because so I, and I ask that because some and, I, and I've had split, you know, I've had some people in Syracuse who are like, oh, wow, you're really, you know, anti Syracuse. You're really anti NCAA. Well, it's like, well, it's not that I just wanted to operate better. I, I, you know, I, I, I love my school, but I want the school to be able to operate in a fair way. Do you do you get some of that same criticism? Yeah, you, you get a lot of pushback from mostly it, it comes on social media. Uh, when when you have discussions like this or you're on a panel somewhere giving a speech, it's always reasonable. And, you know, you have reasonable disagreement. You go back and forth on things and, and you always wind up in a better place at the end of it, at least a better place of understanding. What what I, I hear the most, especially on social media, is this idea of, of, well, if you don't like it, then why don't you just quit? Right. You know, that, that I had to I had to just resign and protest over it. And my response is that, well, you know, when you love something, you don't just accept the flaws in it. You, right. you work to make it better. And I love college sports. I love college basketball. I love basketball, sure. period. I don't, sure. I don't put limits on it. Right. But the, the other part of it is I, I kind of compare it to being an American citizen mm -hmm. that that I love America. Mm -hmm. I, I and I respect my government. I don't agree with everything America has done or is doing. Right. So when I see something that I don't, a policy, uh, a governmental policy that I differ with, I say something. I speak mm -hmm. out on it. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not required to to renounce my citizenship and leave the country. Mm -hmm. You know that's not the way it works, and it's not just a vote. You know, it, you know, you're allowed to say, you know, I have a First Amendment right that that, mm -hmm. that I can challenge my government. And I feel the same way about challenging policies. Like I'm not out there ranting and raving saying these NCAA people, they're awful. You right. know, they're great people, yeah. but I differ with this policy. And I think this policy should change and it can be improved. And when somebody lies, I say, no, that's a lie. Right. <laughs> um, and I point it out. And to me, if the NCAA's policies are so great, they should be able to justify them. Right. Like I, I'm not out saying, oh, my God, I can't believe that the NCAA has a policy that says when a player has a uh, when a player gets hit in the head, they should be checked for a concussion. Right. That's ridiculous. This is right. America. We should be right. able to play with. All these things are reasonable, yeah. and and they're 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 not shouted. They're they're said in a calm voice. And here's the way this is being couched. Here's here's the policy, and here's why I disagree with it. And here's the way it should be. Right. That that's the way we should do this, and I'm okay with that. And but, Etan, the, the reason we're here at this point now and we're headed toward, I think, a better outcome in the future mm -hmm. is because people uh, like you and maybe me and, and lawmakers out there, we've examined these issues. We talk about it mm -hmm. and we point it out. We don't do it in the middle of a game. Like I don't stop a game, and you know when I'm on the telestrator saying, you know, look at this great play that Sir, you know, Jim Beheim just drew up out of the timeout. And by the way, I can't believe these players aren't paid. Right. I don't do <laughs> right. That. We do it when we're talking about policy. We do it at the appropriate time. But this goes all the way back to when I was a player, 
you know, th- there were people back then, like to your point about Danny Shays saying mm-hmm. that that maybe it was a fair trade back then. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of visionaries back then that said, like, and one of them was a guy named Dick Devenzio, who played at Duke in the in the the, the early seventies. Okay, and and he approached me when I was on the NCAA's long range plan as a player. So I was I was learning about policy. I was sitting in those meetings and I differed with the way the NCAA was doing things. And I didn't like the policy and said so, but I wouldn't say it publicly because I felt like I was on the team. I was on the NCAA's team mm-hmm. and a decision was made. I needed to support it. Devenzio used to come to me and say, and he, and he wrote books on it. He, he, he said, this is unfair. Um, you guys are getting exploited and here's why he used to send checks to players. Like he'd send a, a $10 check to a bunch of players that they cashed it. They were ineligible. He wanted to show how stupid that was that he could make a player ineligible with 10 bucks. Right. right. And he approached me in 1986. We had just reached the final four and said, what would you guys think about a boycott at the final four? Mm. And my response was, let's do it next year. You know, we just, we just made it. I'd like to win the thing and, mm. and we'll worry about this other stuff afterwards. But he was way ahead of it, and uh, and there were a whole bunch of people that felt you know, that were way ahead of it. Um, I'm grateful that they put that work in to educate people like me, right? And then I'm grateful that so many people now, and the, but especially the players now, the players are so much more educated and empowered right now to that than we were. Mm-hmm. Um, w- and this is not anything against the coaches, but the coaches and the administrators had their thumb on us more than they have their thumb on the players. Now they can't with social media and all, all that it's made it different and they can't control the players like they could control us. So, so we're seeing more rapid change now. And I'm grateful for that. I think it's, I think it's way past time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and it doesn't bother me that we're not going to benefit from it. I'm glad that the players now get to benefit from it, and and I think they'll I think it'll make everything in this business even better, and uh, and and I'm I'm happy about it. You mentioned that you know that players like like you are not going to benefit from it, and I'm I'm thinking back to some of the players from the past. You know, of course, I think for the Fab Five and you know UNLV, and you know of course so many with football, Tim Tebow, you know, and Bo Jackson. And how much they would have benefited from something like this, and it's just it's just amazing to me. Like, could you think of some people who would have benefited, like really benefited from this in a major way? Because this was all, especially before social media, but they were bigger than life back then. I mean, I grew up in Oklahoma. Brian Bosworth was bigger than life. Like he would have had all kind of marketing. It's just it's amazing to see it, and in some ways, it's kind of like the NCAA needs to go back to some of the people who they had violations against for, you know, I don't know how that's even possible, but you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, it is possible. It is. That's a good, well, that's a great point. And, and I look at it the same way in, in a way I look at it the same way that, that when Oscar Robertson was playing in the NBA, he didn't make that much money. And I'm sure he's looking at today's game saying, could you imagine how much I would have made? Right. Well, you, you know, you can't go back and 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 compensate Oscar Robertson for the fact that he played at a different time. I, who I'm not suggesting that. What the NCAA can do, they they can't they can't compensate people for you know you know not having had the the advantages that the players today do. 
But what they can do is go back and right the wrongs where they punished unnecessarily because of these improper and, and I believe, illegal rules. And I believe the Supreme Court pointed out that that all of these rules were were illegal. So any any eligibility issue having to do with money, I think as a gesture of goodwill, the NCLB doesn't have to do this. They're under no legal obligation to do it. But I think they, they would would really help themselves if, if as a gesture of goodwill, they went back and said, Reggie Bush, Fab Five, the UMass women's tennis team that got their national championship taken away because or their, their Atlantic 10 championship taken away because they had a $250 phone jack mm-hmm. that was improperly uh, allowed to them. You know, stuff like that, anything having to do with money, they should restore all records and uh, and and rescind all punishments like uh, disassociation, things like that, which is cruel to begin with. But they should do that and and get rid of all that stuff. And now the stuff on academics and and all that stuff. If you were ineligible as a student, that's fine. I get that. But but you know Reggie Bush should get his trophies back. USC should get their banners back. And you know your point about not to delve in too far into this stuff, but your point about uh, bring up Kareem before. UCLA, this, I grew up in Los Angeles, and this maybe a, maybe a little bit before your time, but I know you know the history of, of the game very well. Mm-hmm. You know, UCLA won 10 national championships in 12 years. Mm-hmm. They had a booster back then named Sam Gilbert that was paying the players. Okay. Uh, the university knew about it, and John Wooden knew about it. They, they didn't do anything about it. It was a little bit of a different time. But it's my contention that there's no banner hanging anywhere in America where uh, championship banner where all the players were strictly eligible under NCAA rules that all of us took something at one time or another whether it's a free meal here or something there mm-hmm. um and some took more right. but but no good player was was eligible in college nobody right. and and why, why are we going on with this fiction that somehow these ban you know some banners should be down like Marcus Camby right. um took a few bucks from an agent Mm-hmm. Uh, and a piece of jewelry or something, and that that invalidates his whole career. That's absurd. Right. And you know, let, let, let's go back and right those wrongs. I, I get it. Rules are rules. I'm not suggesting that rules weren't violated. What I'm saying is the rules in place were illegal and they were improper and they were wrong. So let, let let's go back and and get everybody on the same page. And and the NCAA might get some of its credibility back if it would make that gesture of goodwill and sort of decriminalize things that, that, that they made criminal that just weren't that, that, that were normal human behavior. Let me tell you a quick story that, and to your point, they have a, they have a lot of wrongs that they have to write with that. So I'm in Syracuse. Um, this is like my either freshman or sophomore year. Um, you know, me and my girlfriend at the time, who's my wife now, Nicole, we would go to church with our um, with my assistant coach, Lewis Orr. That was my guy. So we would go to church on Sundays, you know, with, with Coach Orr. So I got a call from compliance one time asking me to come in. And they had, like, pictures of me in Coach Orr's car. And they were like, you know, is this, you know, is this you on this date? And at first they just said this date, this date, and this date. You know, did you get an improper, the way they phrase it, improper benefit from your coach and, and a ride. To, and I was like, oh, wow. Okay, let me go back to my calendar. What, what was I doing on those days? And they're all Sundays. I was like, oh, wait, who's going to church? I was like, 
he was giving me a ride to church. And, then, and, and it was this big thing and I had to prove that the pastor had to tell, yes, we actually went to the church. And it was, I was like, so all of this, because he gave me a ride to church? That, but that shows how ridiculous the rules actually are and were and how many people, and people don't understand how many people get in trouble for the smallest little, it's an infraction that shouldn't be an infraction. Right. And, and that's the problem. So you have all of these athletes who, you know, it didn't work out well from them. You know, that you have some athletes that they, they want to go to the, the senior dinner that the school wants them to go to, but they don't have a dress code. So they have an AAU coach that buys them a dress code so they can go to the senior dinner that the school is making all the money from and sponsoring and all the, the season ticket holders pay to see them. And then they get in trouble because their old AAU coach bought them a suit for that senior dinner. All these different ridiculous cases where they haven't been able to play in March Madness. They've been suspended. They lost their scholarship, all this stuff. So I think you're absolutely right. The NCAA should go back and right all those wrongs. Um, they, they, they should. And they should. It, it, it would, and, and again, they don't have to. I'm not suggesting that there's any obligation legally or otherwise, but it would be a smart, I think it would be a smart decision for them to do it. Um, there are certainly going to be people that say, well, wait a minute, that that uh, the people who followed the rules are the ones getting screwed if you reinstate all these things. No, they're not. Like, come right. on, man. You know, right. first of all, you know, everybody, everybody followed the rules. And then you could argue in a way that nobody followed the rules, okay. that there's no way there is no way that you can uh, follow all these rules without violating them. It's impossible to live that way. Right. And I think the NCAA knows it, but but just the fact that they can sit you down. I mean, I had the same thing when I was in, in high school and college. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I was being recruited, I had to sit down with a uh, at the end of my recruitment, I had to sit down with a former FBI agent mm -hmm. who was working for the NCAA that went over my entire recruitment. Did was I offered this? What did what happened on this visit and all that? And I'm going, did they know what you know? Like if a place gave you a couple of T-shirts or something on your visit, um, you're worried about that? Like, are you yeah. kidding? Yeah. And and all all this stuff was so it, it it's it, it's been ridiculous for all these years, mm -hmm. and it's ridiculous now. Let's go back and right those wrongs and do it with Reggie Bush and the Fab Five and all that stuff, and and let's move forward with a better taste in our mouths than than we have, um, because and we can you know. I don't, I don't want to tell too many stories on these things because we get down a rabbit hole, but like your story about the church thing, mm -hmm. I had a discussion with a, uh, a former player in the ACC who became very prominent uh, politics, you name it, and was talking about, you know, the players today, like, look at what they're doing and all this stuff and basically making it seem like uh, they've got their hand out and they're trying to violate rules. And, mm -hmm. and I couldn't help it. I said, uh, when you were in school, did you sell your ACC tournament tickets? And he said, well, yeah, everybody did. And I said, that was against the rules. Right. <laughs> you know, like we're calling these players essentially, you know, calling them right. hypocrites or hands out or whatever. And right. and that was an established business in the ACC in the 70s and, and 80s that player, players sold their tickets. Right. And they gave away their you – know, they sold their comp tickets. They traded stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it happened. It happened all the time. It was normal behavior, and uh, and we criminalized it. Uh, and I don't see why. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Let me ask you: Where do you see the NCAA headed? 
do you see as a whole? Do you think that people are going to start flocking as far as let's, let's talk as far as um, basketball? Do you think that people are going to start flocking to different, you know, G League, you know, maybe trying to, if they do, you know, they, they, there's a, there's been the discussion that the NCAA is going to hurt themselves by fighting too much against um, the system. But the, with the NIL uh, ruling, I think this actually helps the NCAA to keep a lot of players who probably would have gone different routes. Would you, would you agree with that? I agree with you that I think I think opening this up and allowing players to benefit um, with their NIL and and hopefully someday beyond uh, helps helps the NCAA retain players you know get players in the first place and then retain them. Um, I'm I'm fine with alternative you know options for players that there are other markets available to them whether it's going overseas or the G League or go, you know if they ha- happen to be allowed to go directly into the NBA out of high school that's all fine to me. Um, what I would like to see the NCAA and by extension, the member institutions do is be more welcoming into college. I happen to believe, look, I believe in education. I went to school. I went to law school. I graduated on time. I did my homework, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think college is the best place for any young adult, but, but that does, you know, that doesn't mean they should, but if I'm, if I'm trying to, to, you know, provide incentives to college. So I'm, I'm saying, Hey, come to school and we'll, we'll help you get educated and pursue your dream. Those things aren't mutually exclusive. And if you decide that you want to pursue your dream in the middle of your education, mm-hmm. we want you back. We'll help you get educated while you pursue your dream, whether it's online education, come back during the summers, whatever it is, we're, we're going to help you and encourage you. And then when your your professional career may be over, whatever, we're gonna, we want you back. It doesn't have to be full time. We'll figure it out. But we, you know, if, if we preach lifelong education, we want you uh, lifelong, and uh, and you know, make it make it more inclusive. Like bring them in. But right now, and you tell me if you disagree with this, but I think the attitude that the NCAA and 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 the member institutions have right now is it, to basketball players, especially if you're not going to be Bill Bradley or Shane Battier, go off and play. You know, go off and play professionally. We don't want you in the first place. And I think that's a really crappy way to approach this. And it's a bad message to send about education. It's a bad way to talk to young adults that that in, in basketball are primarily African-American. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we should be putting up barriers or stop signs or closing doors on, on education to people who just happen to want to play professional basketball. Because we never say that, Etan, we never say that to music students. Or, or acting students, we never say, do you know how few people make it in music beyond, you know, playing in college? You know, now you can play in the college band. You know, you know how few people really make it? And you're going to put all your eggs in that bat? We don't say that. But, but we only say it to athletes. But here's the thing, Jay, and this is the honest truth. Um, and this is something that I learned while I was at Syracuse, is that they don't really care about education that's just something they put in a pamphlet and i have a you know specific example with that with my now wife then girlfriend nicole so she played for the syracuse women's team right and you know she had multiple knee injuries and going into her senior year the doctor dr dr Raphael, um told her that if you want to be able to play with your kids when you're older you need to stop playing basketball because this is your 
second or third ACL tear, you know, and you need to stop playing. That was his recommendation to her. And so, of course, she's devastated, you know, because athletes, the way we're wired, we're going to play through anything. You know, the, the stop playing is not even an option. We can't even conceptualize that. That's just how athletes are built. So she's devastated that her the team doctor told her that her career is basically over, right? Then the head coach, who was then Marianna Freeman, and assistant coach, you know, Felicia Leggett, wanted to take her scholarship away. This is going and going into her senior year. So you have um, this young girl who now has to get a lawyer, get her mother to come and meet with then was Jake Krathamel, who was the, the AD at the time, and fight to keep her scholarship. Now, and so that when I saw that, I learned then that, wait a minute, they were really about education. The fact that she could no longer play wouldn't make them take her scholarship away. They would say, okay, you've given it three years, um, you know, finish your, you know, get your degree. We value education. Make sure you need any help. They literally cut off her keys so she couldn't even get into the academic wing anymore. Like they, and, but, but and every time I told that story, there were all, and sometimes my wife was like, why do you always have to bring that up? You know what I mean? But every time I tell that story, she gets at least, at least 10 to 20 different emails or calls, or I do, from other athletes who that's happening to them right, right. now. And they want to know, how did she not allow them to take her scholarship? And it's probably going to happen again as soon as this airs. And But that showed me that they don't care about education. It's not nothing to do with education. It is all a business. You are there to play and earn money for the university, and that's it. And that's just that's just the reality of it. I, I think that's absolutely right. And and now I'm I'm talking primarily because I do think there are there are many people on these campuses that are about education, only education. Like I think when you're dealing with coaches and and staffs of the the a particular program. They can be at cross purposes with education because they're hired to to build a program and win. Okay. And the 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 education part can be separate. And I, I do happen to look at this like the education and, and success in athletics aren't mutually exclusive. You can you can do both. You know, you don't have to choose. They make it seem like and that, that I've always had a problem with the NCAA's reasoning on this, you know, when they say you're an a, you're a, you're a, a student first that just happens to be an athlete. Like yeah. who talks like that? Like <laughs> like first, First of all, like, you know, I'm, I'm 57 years old now. I don't I don't prioritize my life like that by saying, well, I'm a husband first who happens to be a father. And then third on the list is my job. And then right. like, well, <laughs> where, where do I put my faith in there? And right, you know, right. come on, man, no, nobody does that. We, we can you know, we can we can do multiple things at one time and be about more than one thing. We can right. we can prioritize things at different times. Yes. Um, so I've, I've always had a little bit of a problem with that. But we, we talked a little bit earlier about about, you know, where this is headed. And I do believe that we're going to see uh, we might not see unionization because there are some hurdles to that with public and private institutions on the legal front. Mm -hmm. But we are going to see uh, players empowered to gather together in groups, whether it's for group licensing. And we will see players empowered more to um, to. I don't know if it's necessarily bargaining, but to to get together and make sure that they're more protected, that that these stories about about that your wife went through, that others have gone through, that they're they're very individual. 
and and we, athletes are going to be able to band together now and that that's i think they're more um enlightened than we were about the collective power they have and you know when i mentioned the thing about dick devenzio approaching me in 1986 about hey what would you guys think about boycotting the final four mm-hmm. well now that's a an annual topic among teams mm-hmm. you hear and yeah, I've been approached by players, you know, after they win their Elite Eight game saying, hey, here's what we're thinking about doing. And I'm like, mm-hmm. hey, first of all, I can't help you with that. Right. But here are some of the questions I think you should ask yourselves before you do that. And and they're like, they're a bunch of the, the problem they've had is it's hard to organize in five days before, between you because know, you don't know you're going to win your Elite Eight game. And then right. you're talking about doing something like that. And there are a lot of issues to deal with. Right. But we're we're closer than we've ever been to that. And it hasn't been a boycott. It's been, well, we're, we're talking about delaying the game for a few hours mm-hmm. to, sh- to show people that, hey, you know, you better pay attention. You know, no no players, no game. Right. And, you know, stuff like that. And uh, I don't think that's the right place to do it, in my view. Mm-hmm. Like, I, and I've said this publicly, and it's, it, it's a – if players wanted to show their, their market power – um, all they'd have to do is use the practice facilities that are attached to their arenas now. And, you know, Duke has a practice facility just because I went to school there. It's a practice facility. It's 150 yards from their, their court in Cameron Indoor Stadium. Okay. If, if Duke's playing Syracuse in a regular season game, you know, 9 o'clock at night, a big Monday or something, TV's there, the crowd's jumping up and down, they're ready to go. The players walk out to center court, shake hands, say, come on, let's go into the practice facility. The managers have it all set up. It's a regulation court, scoreboard, the like. They they walk in there, and they they, they want to play there. So they're saying to their coaches and their uh, the coaches would be told anyway already. But they're saying to their administration, "Hey, we're going to play, um, but we're, we want to play in here." And you know the 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 NCAA has told courts all over the country that we are not selling these athletes. We're selling access to the arenas. So television has bought access to the arena to say, hey, you still got access to the arena. You know, we're not party to your contracts, so we're going to play in here. And and the officials are there. Um, it's all set up. The teams are there. The coaches are there. What are the what are the ADs going to do? Tell the players that order them to play on the main court. Um, they say, hey, wait, you know, you told us this is an avocation. This was for fun. So we think it'd be more fun to play in here. So we're going to play our asses off to win. Mm-hmm. But we're sorry that the fans can't watch and the TV can't get in here. But that's on that's your problem, not our problem. Okay. Um, so you you deal with the money issues there, and and they don't have to answer the thing about you know disrupting the NCAA tournament. They're they're showing, hey man, you don't have a game without us. And then TV's going to ask for their money back. Like we want our money back. You didn't give us a game, and and we didn't buy access to the arena. We bought the players, and we we want our money back. And you'd see a lot of you'd see a lot of discussion from that, and there wouldn't be the the tremendous blowback on the players. Um, it, it would be, I think, a really smart way to approach it uh, to show that, hey, man, you need us, you need us more than you think. I think that I think that's a good point. I think that could definitely work. But I also have to look at the 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 teams, and I wrote about this in my book. Now I don't want to keep mentioning my book, but well, we matter athletes and activists. I mentioned this about the Missouri football team, if you remember a couple years ago. Yep. Um, so there was so much that was going on, just to give a quick background for people that don't remember, there was so much going on on campus. All these different racial incidents was happening. Um, it was like higher learning. If people remember the movie Higher Learning, it was just racial incident after racial incident, right? And nothing was being done. So the student, the student body 
um, you know, primarily the, the, the black associations um, were trying to get the president um, to address these and they didn't, he didn't address them. And over and over, this is going on for the whole semester. And then they made the very wise decision to get the football team involved. The football team stood with the student body. I thought this was like wonderful, like phenomenal. And they threatened to possibly have discussions about maybe boycotting the game that was coming up that week. That's as far as it went, right? And I'm telling you, once they said that, that president was fired like two days after that. Then they had a different board. Then they did an investigation and all this stuff. And that showed me the power that athletes have. So going back to the boycott, if even the threat of boycotting can have that much power for you to remove a president at your university, I can't imagine what if they collectively would actually even delay, like say maybe not even boycott, but just delay. The way that the, remember when Will Chamberlain and Jerry West and all of them delayed the All-Star Weekend and they stayed in, you know what I mean, until they got the, just something along those lines, what they would be able to accomplish after that, because it's all, it's all this, it's all money. So the threat of that, I think they could get things done. Even though I love your example as well. I think your example would go great, but what I saw how that Missouri University reacted to just the thought of the boycott, I was like, wow, they, they're really realizing their, their, the power that they have. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but the, the, you know, the, the bottom line is uh, if you want something, like rights are not handed down from on high. Right. right? Like people in power don't give, don't, don't give the- kind uh, of their heart or anything. They're not gonna give <laughs> rights. They have to be taken. Yes. And and right now they're being taken. You know, yeah. the athletes are taking them and, and they've done it through the courts. They've done it through, you know, legislative efforts. Um, but it's been a long slog. Mm -hmm. And it, it's just like everything else in our country. You know, th there's there's one segment of the population that will say change takes time. Mm -hmm. And then another, like you know, it, sort of in the words of James Baldwin, say, well, how much time does it take? I, I've right. given time. I don't have right. it, I don't have any time left to give. Why not now? Why do we have to wait for fairness? Exactly. Um, fairness is not that difficult. And and we, we see that in every other segment of the business. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the fact that athletes are the only ones restricted and we're not, at, you know, the athletes aren't asking for anything other than take the restrictions off and let us compete in the marketplace just like everyone else. We're, right. we're not saying, we're not saying pay us this amount or anything right. like that. Just, right. just take the, like deregulate it. Mm -hmm. and take these stupid rules away. Um, I don't think that's too much to ask. Uh, I get it that, that you know, people in, in power and, you know, a, a, a large segment of our society looks at this saying, oh, now this too? Right. You know, you want this now? And you're like, really? I mean, yeah. are we really arguing over this kind of thing? Um, but we are. And, and we just have to you know, you have to, I think reasoning it out with people is the best way, best way I can do it from my position is just sort of point out these, like, like your point about Justice Kavanaugh's um, uh, concurring opinion when he listed, if, if every law firm got together and said, this is what we're going to pay our, our lawyers, our young lawyers, uh, and we're going to rationalize that based on love of the law, that would be right. illegal. 
Yeah. And that's what we're doing here. We've made these arguments for years and it, it, it actually felt good to see those in a Supreme Court opinion because, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they're pretty clear, at least to me. Uh, but but most people, most fans don't care because all they want are their games. And I'll give you an example of that. Remember years ago, several years ago, uh, the NFL, I'm a big football. I love football, uh, not as much as basketball, but I enjoy football. And the NFL, the, the NFL officials were uh, were either on strike or locked out because of their pensions. Mm-hmm. And they had replacement officials and they sucked. And it was making the the experience of watching pro football not as enjoyable. So so I'm sitting there watching this going, they got to get this thing settled. I am tired of this crappy officiating, man. It is ruining this for me. I'm not enjoying this. So they finally settled it. And, and as a fan, I didn't care whether the officials got what they wanted or not. Right. We had, we had the games back the way they should be, the way I felt they should be. Right. And it kind of opened my eyes that fans don't care whether the players are paid. Like they won't care whether the players get paid. They don't care that they're not paid now. Right. They just want their games and, and they want it. They want it when they want it. And the, the details of it, they don't care about. So all this hand wringing over NIL, the, the fans don't care. They're still going to go to the games in the fall. The state, you know, Michigan Stadium is going to be full. The shoe at Ohio State is going to be full, mm-hmm. and they are not going to care. Like they're get, if if the quarterback throw at Ohio State throws an interception on the one yard line on the last play of the game, they're going to criticize that guy whether he has a commercial or not. <laughs> right, <laughs> that's true. It doesn't matter. So he might as well have the commercial because um, he's gonna he's gonna get it no matter what. That's so true. you might as you might as well have the commercial and and uh, and you know have have the, everything fair. And, but there is a segment of the population that's now saying, okay, now that you got this, now you should be satisfied. Now the whole the, the, now now your whole objection should be finished. Now you should have nothing else to say about the NCAA. You know, from this point on, because you got this, and I say I I couldn't disagree more. Um, you know, when I make the you know. He, he, the, the correlation of oh, you, you remember the movie Malcolm X when, mm-hmm. when they were they were um, outside of the police station and they had captured one of the members of the Muslims and they had him sitting in the in like a, a room all bloody and everything like that. And he said, you, you know, they, they got to where the, the hospital actually took them and gave them. So the police officer came up to them. And he said, OK, you got what you want. You know, and he said, no, I'm not satisfied. That's how I felt hearing people say that. So I'm looking at the the NCAA, and I've made this this example a lot. But I see the way the NCAA, uh, the NCAA operates. Like, you know when a company goes into a underdeveloped country and they set up shop there, and you'll see, like, a, nothing but forests or nothing but everything like that, and then just a big building with a Nike sign on it or something else. Not, not necessarily just Nike in particular, but any building, right? And then they hire the locals there to work there and pay them pennies a day while they make millions and billions of dollars, right? So that's why that's how I see the NCAA doing with, with college athletes. They, they pay them. Now, are they better off from these pennies a day than they would be if they didn't have those pennies? Probably, yes, I'll, I'll say yes. But are you still exploiting them? And the answer is definitely. So while so so if you make a rule that says okay after I give you these pennies now you could go into the town and you could market that you work for me, that's a little bit better. Okay, we're getting a little bit better there because before you said that I couldn't do that. 
But now, until you pay me more than the pennies a day that you're paying me, we're not. We have a little bit ways to go. Would you Would you agree with this analogy? That Abs I just absolutely. There, there are a couple of metaphors I use with this. First is. I use sort of a water faucet that the rest, every everyone in college sports, including every non-athlete student, gets to drink out of the of a full faucet, like it's flowing completely. When it's the athlete's turn to drink, then we have a big debate over how many drips to allow the athlete, <laughs> and that that that's where we are now. Right. And the second is is sort of a a, a race, like a hundred yard dash, that a lot of people say, well, well, hey. You know, with NIL, uh, you reach the finish line here. Like, you know, the the players aren't even in the starting blocks yet. They're they're out of the locker room on the way to the starting blocks. But fairness means they're in the starting blocks with everybody else allowed to compete in the race. Mm -hmm. Athletes don't even have that yet, right. and uh, so so we are far from. We're not even. It's not that we're far from the finish line. We're far from the starting blocks. Mm -hmm. Like the starting blocks is a fair shot along with everyone else. And right now, all athletes have is, well, you can do some endorsements as long as the endorsements don't conflict with your university, as long as you register it with them, as long as it's a, a fair market deal uh, and, and boosters aren't involved and this and that. It's all these quote unquote guardrails, which are just a fancy word for restrictions, mm -hmm. which nobody else has. Like they're not telling the coaches, well, no booster can be involved in your uh, deals for your name image and likeness so we're not saying that to anybody else right. so we're not even at the starting blocks yet but it's a it's a step forward and and i'm i'm happy that we're able to for lack of a better way of putting it celebrate that that we're a step further than we were uh, a month ago mm -hmm. but uh but we're a long way from fair and to me fair isn't that difficult if, if we're asking these questions about well what what guardrails do we need we don't need guardrails like we're we're not we're not manufacturing nuclear weapons here, right? Um, right. You know, and this is not a public health concern. Yeah, you know, yeah. We're not in the drug manufacturing and distribution business here. Right. Um, it's just sports. Like we we don't need guardrails for this. It's not a public health or public safety issue. Uh, it's just it's just straight up business, and the players can participate just fine. They'll be okay. They've got, you know, we can trust them to make their decision on when they where they go to school and have it binding. But we can't trust them to decide, well, do I want to do a commercial for this entity or do I want to spend my time here? It's it's ludicrous, really. Right. So last question. I've kept you long enough. This is a fantastic discussion, I got to tell you. Um, but last question. Um, you played against Lynn Bias, correct? Mm -hmm. and, yes. and Lynn Bias here, you know, I live in Prince George's County and he is a legend here. And, you know, we was talking about earlier about different athletes who would have in the past who would really have benefited from something like this. And then of course, to, you know, Lynn Bias's tragic past, um, that could have been something that his family could have benefited from for a long time. Um, but just tell me what, what was it like playing against Lynn Bias and what, what was that experience like? Well, when I played in college, it was the mid eighties. So I played from 1982 to 1986. So, uh, in the ACC back then, uh, Ralph Sampson was at Virginia. Michael Jordan was at, uh, at North Carolina, Sam Perkins, those guys, Kenny Smith, uh, and Lynn bias was at Maryland. Uh, Mark price was at, at Georgia tech. There were, there were so many great hall of fame players that were in the league. Um, the, the two that, well, three, the three that stood out above everyone else were Samson, who's in the Basketball Hall of Fame, 
Jordan, who is, I don't think, arguably Jordan. even, right. is the, the greatest player ever. Right. And Len Bias, who was, at that time, Jordan's equal. Right. That Bias was, uh, he was my year in school. Uh, so I played against him for four years, got to know him. Uh, he was, we used to call him Superman um, mm -hmm. because he was. He was a two-footed leaper that was ridiculous in his vertical. And also, as you know, I mean, you don't see many great leapers that are also magnificent jump shooters. Mm -hmm. He was a magnificent jump shooter. His form was impeccable, 85% free throw shooter, um, just a magnificent player. Mm -hmm. And had he lived beyond his senior year of college, he was drafted number two by the Boston Celtics mm -hmm. uh, and, and died a, a day or two after the draft. Mm -hmm. um, had he lived, it would have been him, in my view, it would have been him and Michael Jordan for the next dozen years for the, the best player in the game. He was that talented. And so we, we lost a tremendous amount with his passing. Um, but, but yeah, I do look back at what those players could have done in the marketplace had they been allowed to. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's not just money. It's sort of the, you know, the money is important. I mean, it's not, I don't want to diminish that, but, but having players be on equal footing with everyone else would have been important and it would have put them in a different light. Um, you know, we, we've infantilized, uh, college players for too long. Mm -hmm. um, we celebrate them as pros and adults and, but, but in every other way we treat them like children and mm -hmm. like somehow they have to be protected and, you know, like the NCAA is protecting them from exploitation while the NCAA exploits them. Right. It's just wrong. And, right. and everybody sees it now. Uh, so we need to get away from it and, uh, and move forward in a positive direction. I think we're doing that, but it's just taken too like everything in our society when fairness is an issue, um, it's just, it's taking too long. Definitely agree. Definitely agree. Jay Billis, thank you so much for this conversation and please keep doing what you're doing. Like, I really, I really mean that. I said that at the top of the, of the, of the show and, you know, I appreciate your voice out there because it's been a consistent voice and consistently putting pressure and pointing these things out that people, would you do it on social media and you, you know, the way that you're talking and you make people think now, You'll have a lot of people that backlash and don't agree with you, um, but you'll also spark a thought like, okay, I never thought of it that way. And I, I really appreciate you doing it. And I know a lot of college players who can't necessarily make those arguments for themselves um, while they're in college, even though they're starting to do that a lot more now, but for a long time, you know, that it's kind of a risk speaking out against the NCAA system while you're in the NCAA system, you know? So I really appreciate what you're doing. And thanks again for coming on the show today. Well, Eton, thank you for having me and right back at you. I appreciate, I appreciate your words, but, but more than anything, I appreciate you and your voice is far more powerful uh, because of your depth of knowledge and uh, the way you present these issues in an, in such a reasonable and understandable way. And uh, and w whether it's it's your writing, which is fantastic, or your voice, uh, you're you're a, a such a powerful figure uh, in this debate, and uh, and I really enjoy listening to you, and I'm a, I'm a huge admirer of yours, not not only as an athlete because I love watching you play, uh, but but as a person and an advocate, uh, you're 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 top of the line. Thank you. Well, I definitely appreciate that.
Thank you for listening to The Rematch. You can find more episodes on basketballnews.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can also find my articles on basketballnews.com, along with exclusive content from Kenyon Martin, James Posey, and more. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at AtonThomas36. Let me know what you thought of this episode and who you'd like to see as a guest. I would love your feedback.